Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Central Wired podcast, and thanks for listening in. Make sure to stay connected with us throughout the week at centralwired.com or on Facebook and Instagram. We hope this week's message meets you right where you're at. Enjoy. Hey, glad you're here. That's a multi-generational song. Uh, Made maybe most popular in the recent generation by Adele, but written by a guy from my generation, Bob Dylan. And um, we're here to celebrate all moms of all generations. You love your children and grandchildren with a world-class love. And grandchildren are easy to love, eh? Yeah, baby. Um, You know, they just love to tell the truth. It may make us feel uncomfortable sometimes. My grandson... Uh, he's just over four years old, and he came on a, to a recent service, and I can only tell this this morning because the person he said it to comes on Saturday night. He walks up to an elderly lady in our church and says, are, are you what old looks like? <laughs> yeah, thank you, son. Um, this is a true story. This is a true story. A little boy is taking a test in school, and the test question was this. Which eats more at a picnic, a mosquito or an ant? Here is the little boy's answer. Not a mosquito, not an ant. My dad eats more. He's chubby. (laughs) My dad's got a problem. I think that kid's cut out of the well now. A little girl, fifth grade girl named Rachel, writes a breakup letter to her boyfriend, her fifth grade boyfriend. She writes this way, Sean, I'm breaking up with you. You have not talked to me since the day you asked me out. That was three months ago. You need to get it together or you'll never get married. And that would be sad. You should get married, Sean, just not to me. (laughs) Signed, Rachel. And then the last is a letter that a little girl wrote to God. Dear God, I bet it's hard for you to love all of everybody in the whole wide world. There's only four people in my family, and I can't do it. (laughs) Signed, Nan. Well, um, I have a love letter to share with you this morning, because here's the good news. Our God shows no favorites. Our God has no biases or prejudices. He loves everyone, everyone, everyone without restriction or restraint. Now, I admit, loving me has got to be a full-time job for him. He's got his hands full with this old guy. Speaking of old guys, my son, uh, Wilkie, works at Frito-Lay. And he met a guy that he thinks is an old guy at work uh, last week. He asked Wilkie where he goes to church. Wilkie says here at Central Christian. The guy said that he had come to our church for the first time and heard this old guy talk who had a lot of energy. Um, uh, here's the deal. Um, last week, we talked about the builder generation. Greatest generation ever. Ever People born between 1925 and 1945, they built this country, endured the Great Depression, World War. Then, today, we're going to talk about my generation, uh, the baby boomers. Next week, our newest associate minister, Ray, will preach. He's going to talk about Generation X, his generation, and use the story of Noah. It'll be, he'll just rock the house. You know Ray and love him. Um, But today is my generation, and my generation, baby boomers, when those soldiers came back from World War II, 
Between 1946 and 1964, they wanted to start families. And during that span of time, in America, there were 77 million babies born. It was a baby boom. And our generation was the first generation raised with TV. Except I had to clue in the young people last night because when I was growing up, my TV only had three channels, CBS, NBC, and ABC. That was it. And if you wanted them to come in clear, you had to have rabbit ears. And I'm not talking about a real rabbit. And, you know, you had to get one kid to put tinfoil on one rabbit ear and hold it in a certain way. And the other kid was the remote. His dad would say, get up and change the channel. (laughs) That was how I grew up. We love shows like Andy Griffith, uh, Andy, Opie. Uh, Aunt B, Barney with his one bullet in his pocket, or the Ed Sullivan Show. Anybody remember the Ed Sullivan Show? Yeah, we got to see the newest rock and roll acts, the Beatles, Elvis. I hated the Beatles. All the girls liked them. No, it was was awesome. But what shaped my generation most was the news broadcast that came out of the TV in the evening. Maybe if you're a part of the builder generation, you guys sat around the radio and listened. But my family, we sat around the TV. I was 11 years old when they announced that John F. Kennedy had been assassinated. I was 17 years old, sitting in front of that TV with my mom and dad, when the first man walked on the moon. Um, but, but, but really, the things that shaped us were things we'd never seen before. Our parents had heard about the World War But the Vietnam War came right into our living room through the TV screen, and we saw the gory, bloody, horrific images. As a little kid growing up in a little town in central Illinois, I had no idea the suffering that African-American people were doing, ugly, ugly discrimination and prejudice. But a great hero of our nation, the Dr. Martin Luther King, leading the civil rights movement, came across my TV screen and inspired a nation that everyone deserves hope. And then I think we were most affected, my generation, uh, yeah, by the war, but also by Watergate, because the highest office in the land had uh, shown deceit and corruption. As a result, we didn't trust anybody. They called us uh, hippies, uh, flower children. We were against the man. We were against the establishment uh, of the day. In fact, our two longings, and it's still true about us as baby boomers, we want honesty, full disclosure at every level. (laughs) This is why, um, have you ever heard the initials TMI, too much information? That's me. We just puke it out on you. We just want to be completely honest, just be real about our lives. Not always pretty, but also we long for hope. For every single person on the planet, all kinds of people, all colors of people, all cultures of people, we believe everyone deserves hope, and I believe everyone finds hope through a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, the person in the Bible who most exemplifies these two qualities of baby boomers, honesty and hope, is the Apostle Paul. Now, I say Apostle Paul, he wasn't always called that. Most notable about his life when he was a young man, maybe 28 years old, just a bit younger than Jesus when Jesus died on the cross, Paul did not like Jesus. Paul hated Jesus. Paul hated the enormous 
popularity enjoyed by Jesus. Paul hated to see incredible crowds, unprecedented in number, being drawn to Jesus. He hated the teaching of Jesus. It was so counter to what he had been taught and what he taught. He hated to hear Jesus teach. He hated the miracles of Jesus. They were undisputable, but he only believed Jesus could work those wonders because he was possessed by the devil and had evil power. Paul was glad when they killed Jesus on the cross. He thought, finally, we've got him shut up. He was glad to see the followers of Jesus scurrying off into the darkness, afraid like a bunch of cockroaches. But he could not, he could not, he could not believe it when the hottest gossip hit the street about a week later that this Jesus crucified on the cross was risen from the dead. No way. He didn't buy it. Couldn't happen. Dead is dead. But then when people, I mean the early church exploded with men, women, and children being baptized all the way into the water and being raised up out of the water to walk in new life with Jesus, he found it absolutely deplorable. He despised it. And then there's this one particular day when on this day, and I've been in this place a couple of times, thousands and thousands and thousands of men, women, and children were baptized on that one day. That was it, Paul thought. I am, you know what? I'm going to make it my obsessive mission to destroy the church and to kill every Christian I can get my hands on. Here's how the Bible paints the picture. Paul threatening with every breath. Can you imagine? He just, as long as I have breath, as long as I can take a breath, I'm going to kill a Christian. Eager to destroy every Christian, he persecuted any believer he could find, both men and women, so that he, so that he could put them in chains. And that's just one step from death. And he authorized their executions. He deputized and authorized a small army of religious fanatics And they went kicking in doors at places of worship. And they would drag the believers out in the street and they would beat them senseless and they would throw them in a dungeon. There they would torture them to get them to uh, deny Christ. And And then they would kill them. Now many of you know the end of the story that this vicious, violent, vigilante, murderous, had a bloodlust to kill Christians, that he became... St. Paul, the Apostle Paul. I mean, cities have been named after him. Uh, Cathedrals have been built in his honor. He is the main character in the book of Acts in the Bible and wrote much of the New Testament under the breath of God. So what happened? What took this bloodthirsty, vicious, violent, vigilant murderer of men, women, and children and turned him into the most loving and prolific proponent of the Christian faith, spread the Christian faith like no one else ever had apart from Jesus. What changed this man's life? I believe this is my theory, and maybe it's just a theory, but I've got enough experience in life to say I think it was the power of a mother's prayers. I know that when I've got struggles, when my back's against the wall, when I've got something hugely important to do or something difficult that's facing me, I call my mom and ask her to pray for me. In fact, as soon as this service is over, as soon as I'm done talking, I'm making a beeline with my Debbie, four and a half hours south of here to spend the rest of the day and tomorrow morning with my mom. It's a power of a mother's prayers. Um, and and I, you see, you got to understand something. Paul was a a child prodigy. He was a boy genius. And his mom was proud of him. 
But on his 10th birthday, his dad took him out of his mom's arms and carried him away 600 miles, having enrolled him in a very prestigious, uh, deeply religious school. And now mom is proud, and can you imagine how her heart was broken, this little boy that she had nursed and nurtured and hugged and kissed and fed and clothed, how she felt. She was, she was proud of where he was and what he was doing, but her arms ached to hold him again and lips ached to kiss him again just to be in his presence and have him around, but he, he's gone. Now, as, as a dad, married to a mom and having a mom who was a Christ follower, it's my deep belief that that mom prayed for her son every day. Every time she thought of him, she prayed for him. Every time she missed him, she prayed for him. And I believe, personally, this is just me, that she prayed a special. It was the keynote prayer of the Jewish people because God promised that if you pray this prayer over someone you love, I will take personal responsibility. I will take initiative personally, and I will bless that person. That was the promise. Here's how God said it. You pray that prayer, and I myself, not somebody else, I myself will personally bless the people that you pray for. And so here's the prayer. This is the keynote prayer of the Jewish people from Numbers chapter 6. This is the prayer. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord's face radiate with joy because of you. May he be gracious to you, show you his favor, and give you his peace. God says, you pray that prayer for somebody, and I'm telling you, I myself will be the answer to the prayer and bless that person personally. And so I just believe she prayed every day for her son. She did not see him. He was gone for over 20 years. And so I believe she prayed that every day and sometimes multiple times whenever she would think of her son, miss her son, her heart be broken by his absence, she would pray that prayer. And I believe that it just swelled up until the dam broke and the favor of God flowed over Paul's life. You see, he, his viciousness was so pro- profound, his murderous activity killing Christians that the church went underground in hiding so no one would know where they were and he couldn't find them. So he said, what the heck, man? I'll just leave here. I'll go to another city. I'll go to the neighboring country of Syria. I'll go to the capital city of Damascus. Word on the street is that Christians have fled there. I'll go there. I'll kill them there. I'll, I'll capture them there. But remarkably, and I think his mom is praying for him at this very moment. At this very moment, she's praying, Lord, bless my son and protect my son and show favor to my son and and let your face shine on my son. Here's what happened. As he was nearing Damascus on this obsessive mission, he was suddenly dazed by a blinding flash of light. And as he fell to the ground, just knocked to the ground, he he heard a voice, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Now, the voice is Jesus. We'll find out in the story. And notice how personally Jesus takes it when you say something, when I say something, when I do something, when you do something against his church. He's not saying to Paul, why are you persecuting Christians? Why are you persecuting the church? He's saying, why are you, you hurt my church, you're hurting me. You hurt my followers, you're hurting me. Why are you doing this? And Paul down the dirt on all fours. 
kind of shaking his head, staggered and stunned by this brilliant light from the face of God. He says, uh, who, who is this? Who, who, who has done this to me, Lord? Jesus responded. The voice replied, I am. Now, that's the name of God. In the Greek, ego and me. In Hebrew, Yahweh. It's the name God gives himself to Moses and says, hey, this is the name I must be remembered by forever. This is my name. I am. So Jesus is saying, I'm God, and my name is Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up, go into the city, and await my further instructions. I wonder in this moment, unaware, um, as Paul's mother prayed for him, head bowed, maybe hands folded, prayed that the Lord would bless him and shine his face on him. I, I wonder if, if a calm assurance swept over her soul. I wonder if there was a, a, a comfort within her that, oh my gosh, I don't know what God's doing, but God's doing something to the good of my son. Here's what happened. The men with Paul stood speechless with surprise. I mean, they had heard the voice, but they saw no one. And as Paul picked himself up off the ground, he found that he was blind. He had to be led into Damascus. I mean, here is this arrogant, high-achieving, high-performing member of the political, religious establishment. He's the kind of guy that other people served. He's the leader. He's in charge. And here he is, humbly having to be led blind into the city of Damascus. Why blind? Why stone cold blind? Why blind? Because, friends, hell is a solitary confinement, absolute blackness and darkness. You can't see the hand in front of your face in hell. Now, three days he suffers this blindness. Why? How, that three's a big deal number in the Bible. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And how many, ta- how many days was Jesus in the tomb? He was resurrected on the third day. So for three days, Paul suffers this hell of inner solitary confinement in a blackness. Now also, it says he goes without food or drink for these three days. Why that? Because he is so consumed with regret. Oh my gosh, I can't believe what I've done, what I, how I hurt those people, how I killed those people, how I, how, how I hurt those family and destroyed those children. I wish I hadn't. I wish I hadn't. I wish I hadn't. And that's another picture of hell here. Because Jesus said hell will be the gnashing of teeth. It was an idiom meaning regret that hell is forever just going, oh, I wish I'd turned to Jesus. I wish I'd believed in Jesus. I wish I'd served Jesus. I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I hadn't been there. And so that's Paul for three days. Now, about five or so years later, I believe that his mom is still praying. And there's a knock at the door. She put, may the Lord bless my son and protect him. And there's a knock at the door. And she goes and opens the door, and there's her son, Paul. She hasn't seen him for 20, 25 years. Can you imagine the tearful, joyous reunion between mother and son? She just throws herself into his arms and ushers him into their home, their kitchen, their kitchen table, and 
And I believe there, this is just me, but I believe that Paul told her his story. And I believe that because he told everybody everywhere he went his story. And in doing so, he was just like the baby boomer generation that I'm a part of. He, was, he just got real. It was not a pretty picture, but he was full disclosure, absolute honesty. In fact, we know this from something that he said to Timothy, a young pastor. He said this. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone, I mean, everyone is me, everyone is you, everyone is every person on the planet, everyone should accept this statement. What is it? Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them all. I've got to tell you, Mom, i just got to be real with you, Mom. All these years, I've been the worst kind of sinner you can ever imagine. I've killed people. I've butchered people. I've tortured people. I mean, here's, here's how he said it. And this is the kind of thing, you can read it yourself in the book of Acts when you get home. It just over and over again, Paul would tell people, hey, I used to believe that I ought to do many horrible things to the followers of Jesus. I imprisoned many and condemned them to death. I used to torture them to try to make Christians everywhere curse Christ. I was so violently opposed to them, I hounded them to distant cities and Paul said, that's what got me in to Damascus. But, but mom, the Lord works everything together for the good of those who love him. Mom, God is able to do immeasurably, abundantly, exceedingly more than we can ask or even imagine. E- e- even though my past had been ugly and murderous and bloody and violent and vicious against innocent people, mom, God was so good that he put a spiritual mentor in my life. His name, mom, his name was Ananias. Mom, don't ever forget that man's name. That man saved my life. Here's what he said, or here's what happened. Ananias came and put his arm on my shoulder. Look up, Ananias said, and I I looked and found myself looking right into his eyes. I could see you again, mom. And then Ananias said, Paul, God has handpicked you. You have actually seen the righteous, innocent one, Jesus, and you heard him speak. You are now to be a key witness to everyone you meet of what you have seen and heard. So what are you waiting for? So what's going to come next? What's the first thing someone's supposed to do when they say they believe in Jesus? Check it out. Ananias says, Paul, get up, get yourself baptized, scrubbed clean of all those sins, and get personally acquainted with God. Look at those profound byproducts of being baptized. One, you are cleansed of all guilt and shame. You are forgiven. When Paul went under the water and was raised up out of the water, he became a forgiven person. No matter how many murders, no matter how much torture, no matter how much vicious violence, he became an absolutely cleansed person, a clean, a forgiven person of all past sins, all present sins, and all future sins. And the same is true of you. If you've been buried with Christ in baptism and raised up to walk in his life, you are a forgiven person, all past sins, all present sins, all future sins, fully forgiven by the work of Christ on the cross. And in fact, isn't that what the picture of baptism is? That that as Christ died on the cross, we die to ourselves and are buried as he was buried. And just as Jesus was raised from the dead, we are raised up out of that water. But what happens to us is that we're completely cleansed of all guilt and shame forgiven of all sin, and we come up with something supernatural. It's called hope. 
And this is something that my generation always longed for. We always believed in that there's always hope. But here's what I know. Our greatest help, for me, for you, is our hope. And hope is not something flimsy, like I want a promotion, or I want to get a raise, or I'm hoping for a, a new home, or a new car, or I'm hoping to get pregnant, or I'm hoping for a, a girlfriend. That's pie in the sky wishing. Real hope, substantial hope, comes through a real relationship with Jesus Christ that positions you unmistakably and undisputedly to be on the receiving end of God's ever-initiating work to your good. Mom, that's what happened to me. I was not a pretty picture, but now, Mom, I know God works everything together for the good. I've been, I've been forgiven. I'm going to spend the rest of my life, Mom, telling you and everybody I meet till the day I die that Jesus is the Savior of the world, and he is the Lord of my life. He would go on to write this. Rejoice, that word means to make joy happen. <laughs> Here's how you make joy happen. You anchor your hope in confidence. You see, through a relationship with Jesus, we are confident in our hope. We are confident. I don't know what bad stuff is going on, what difficulty you face, what challenges you find yourself in that are stressing you out. Here's all that I know that I know, that he is at work to your good if you belong to him. If you are in real relationship with Jesus, he is the God who is able to do immeasurably, abundantly, exceedingly more. And so our hope is confident in him. We don't know how he's going to get it done. We don't know what he's going, how he's going to do it, when he's going to get it done. Here's what we know. We will be patient in trouble because our God is at work to our good. Go back, go back, go back, go back. Oh, there you go. And keep on praying. One prayer I prayed for my family, I prayed the same prayer for 16 years over my children. And then the dam broke and God answered the prayer. Um, my Deb and I pray every night and take communion for our children, whatever the issue, whatever the concern, because we just, whatever the trouble is in our family, we just keep on praying, holding on to our hope in Jesus. Paul writes this way, your hope will keep you happy. Isn't that wild? We think uh, a new boyfriend will make me happy. We think getting pregnant will make us happy. We think getting a new house will make us happy. Driving a new car will make us happy. Um, the Cubs winning last night's game in the 15th inning. Okay, I was happy. Um, but look at this. You don't work on your outside stuff to get happy. You don't work on the happiness. You work on the inside stuff. You work on your Hope and happiness is a byproduct of the hope. Your hope will keep you happy and full of peace as you believe in God. I pray that God will help you to overflow with hope in him because our hope is our help. Now, I mentioned earlier, Paul just getting real and honest, fully disclosing with this young pastor named Timothy, but I haven't shown you how he climaxes the statement with hope. Look at the text. Paul says to Timothy, um, as he writes to him, Timothy was living, I'm keeping talking so you put it up on the screen. Oh, it's already there. Okay, Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them all, but God. Say, but God. But God, those are the two most important words in your life. I was an addict, but God. 
My marriage was a mess, but God. My children were rebellious, but God. I suffered a financial reversal, but God. I was lost in the depths and the darkness and the deprivation of my sin, but God. But God had mercy on me. You know what mercy is? Mercy is God protecting you from bad stuff you deserve for bad stuff you've done. But God gave mercy so that Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst of sinners. And then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. Others who can believe in him and receive eternal life, not just in heaven, but right now the superabundant life of Jesus. Others, that's you. Others, that's me. You can believe. You can receive. You can surrender. And you can position yourself to be on the receiving end of the superabundant life of Jesus. If you'll stand with me, I'd like to pray that prayer blessing over you, that God will personally show his favor to you in response to this prayer. Would you bow your heads uh, with me, please? Lord Jesus, would you bless all these gathered here and, and protect them, Lord? Lord, would you shine your face on them and show them your delight, how delighted you are with them, like a father delights over a child? And Lord, would you give them your grace? Would you show them your favor and your mercy, Lord, and bless them? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us. Just a reminder to stay connected with us throughout the week at centralwire.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again for being with us and have a great week.